Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here for one reason, and that is to learn to become better Habitat Managers. I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. We have a special guest, Chris Pope from Georgia, and we are going to talk trapping, guys. Chris is an excellent coyote trapper. He has a coyote trapping school that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how trapping relates to habitat management, how you being a habitat manager should be trapping your place for predators or at least doing some management. How you can get started trapping. If you're like me and have never really done it before, have wondered how you can get into it, we're going to talk about that. The gear you need, the setups, the locations where you set traps, what kind of traps, etc. What happens when you actually catch a coyote? What do you do next? How to take care and how to sell your fur. And lastly, like I mentioned, we're going to cover Chris's coyote trapping school. So hang in there, guys. We have a great episode from Chris Pope in Georgia. I have actually want to go back and thank the listeners one more time. We've been getting some great iTunes reviews this week. They were left in December and January, but they're just now popping up. So it must be something that Apple does where they, they vet them out or something. But Brothers Rut. I love the emphasis on story time and big focus on habitat improvement, as well as what improvements lead to better encounters. Thank you, sir. Get a hold of me. We'll get you a free detail. Farmer Tim. Whitetail hunting and farming are my passions. These guests that these guys offer are second to none when it comes to whitetail habitat. Thanks, Farmer Tim. He goes on and says a lot more. It's just amazing. Thank you so much. And uh, lastly, Hidden Ridge Hunter. Really enjoy the mix of everyday guys and some experts. I've been picking up ideas, adding them to my list for my 38 acres in Illinois. Guys, thanks so much for leaving those reviews. I'm going to try to find out who you are based on your iTunes names and get some details out to you. But I just want to thank you for doing that. That really helps us, you know, store to the top of the iTunes list when people type in Habitat Management or Habitat Podcast. So thank you, everybody. If you want to go on there and leave a great review, I'd be happy to send you a detail in doing so. And uh, lastly, guys, we want to thank our sponsors who make this show possible, the Packer Max line of Cultipackers. You can find 10% off of any Cultipacker at PackerMax.com. Make sure you mention the Habitat Podcast to get that discount. Secondly, Nations Creations, the maker of the Habitat Hook. If you also get a hold of Nick over at Nations Creations, you can get 10% off of any hook if you mention the Habitat Podcast. It's free money, guys. Like I say, free money. I love it. And lastly, Nick Percy at Killer Food Plots. I've been doing a lot of thinking about what we're going to plant on my place this spring and Brian's place this spring. Nick has a lot of great things to offer. I talked with him at the trade show last weekend. And, uh, you know, check him out at KillerFoodPlots.com. Tell him the Habitat Podcast sent you. Guys, thanks again for listening. We're going to get right into it with Chris Pope at the Coyote Trapping School, teaching us all things trapping. All right, guys, we're back. Another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have our friend Chris Pope on the line. Chris, how are you doing, buddy? I'm good. How are y'all doing? Good, man. Thanks for coming on tonight. Yeah, you bet. You bet. I always like to talk trapping, so. <laughs> All right. And, Brian, we didn't lose you, right? Still here, buddy. All right. Most importantly, Brian Hallblight is on the line. All right. Guys, we have uh, Chris on. Chris is from, well, your your area code said Atlanta, Georgia. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't I don't like to claim Atlanta, but I'll claim Georgia for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I don't know if you ever heard an episode of our podcast before, but we like to dive in right away and hear all about you for, you know, 5, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it is. Tell us about you, where you're from, you know, help us, as I like to say, paint a picture of who Chris Pope is and, and what you're about. Yeah, sure. So, so I'm a Georgia boy, a, a Southern boy, uh I grew up hunting and fishing with my dad, and uh, that's, you know, I guess what started everything. I was just, I uh, started out squirrel hunting and, and rabbit hunting and small game hunting and then graduated up to deer hunting, and, and uh, just it, the fire grew in me to just do anything that I could out outdoors. And so I was always looking for something else to do, so I started bow hunting to prolong my season. And uh, my uncle had a bunch of old episodes of fur, or, uh, fur fishing game magazines, 
And uh, I started reading through those years old, but man, they had the articles of trappers in Alaska that just captivated me. And uh, so I started getting more interested in trapping. And, and uh, one of the things that also interested me was the possibility of making a little money at it. So I was always, I'd cut firewood and I was always trying to do anything, especially outside that I could do to earn an extra buck. And so I said, man, I wanted to start looking more and getting more into it. And uh, so I did through high school, I kind of started trapping and, and uh, you know, started started small trying to catch raccoons and whatever I could catch. And uh, I actually got hooked up with uh, folks at the Georgia Trappers Association. And uh, there was a couple of older guys there that took me under their wing. And, man, that re- they really opened, you know, opened my eyes to, to trapping and, you know, how they did stuff and really showed me their, you know, what how they run their trap lines. And, and uh, that put me light years ahead on my learning curve of, of getting getting up to speed and, and really getting effective with my trapping. Um, and so I started doing that, got, getting more into it. I wound up going to uh, University of Georgia. I got a degree in wildlife biology. Thought that was uh, where I was going to go and uh, wound up working for a year, doing a little bit of doing some different uh, wildlife-related things. So I uh, started out working on a deer research project at the Savannah River site, actually, we were catching does and uh, putting transmitters in them to track them when they gave birth and then track down the fawns, and we kept track of the fawns to see if they survived and what killed them if they didn't. So kind of uh, some coyote research, if you will, or some predator research, and um, did that and did uh, actually got to go to Alaska, which was always a, a lifelong dream to, to go to Alaska and working on a, a research project through the through the university there, just studying river otters and um that's just like I said, that my whole my dad always encouraged me that if you wanna if you want to enjoy your job and you want to enjoy your life, you know, do something you love and so that's what I, I was getting after. And um wound up going back to school getting a degree in forestry and that's my my day job now is as a forester. Okay. Um, but I still I still do as much trapping, mainly during trapping season. I do do some nuisance nuisance trapping on the side, and you know during the during the off season. But um, I run a website, YouTube channel, and all called Cody Trapping School, and that's kind of what I center around. What I focus on is is uh, trying to teach people how to trap that are interested. I just what I noticed, you know, coming up is that whenever I would be talking to people and they found out that I was a trapper. And that always intrigued people. They would, you know, make a comment about their, you know, their granddaddy trapped or they used to trap when they were growing up and, and uh, or they just really thought it was interesting, but nobody really knew how to get into it, you know. It's, uh, it's not, you know, it's not really easy to get into hunting and then trapping is like more in, you know, more in depth than hunting, so it's even harder to get into. And so that's kind of why I started all this was to just try to provide an outlet and I have a new people with, if you're interested, man, I'll show you everything you need to know. If you really want to, really want to try it, then then let's go. Come on and and, uh, and figure it out. No, that's awesome. That's and I can actually attest to that. I've always found it interesting. Always wanted to do it. No idea where to start. Uh, so you literally hit the nail on the head there. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to to what you found was uh, a growing need. And how long would you say you've been trapping now? How many years and how many coyotes do you think you you caught? And and lastly, do you say coyote or coyote? And what's the correct term? <laughs> I uh, I say a little bit of both. It kind of coyote <laughs> trapping school tends to sound better than, than coyote trapping school. But, okay. But uh, I, I'll go back and forth. But uh, yeah, I've been trapping now probably close to twenty years, I guess. Being you know just starting kind of running traps for raccoons and, and fiddling as in, in high school. And uh, I've trapped, I, I trapped, well, let's see, right after I got out of college with my forestry degree, I actually went to Alaska and trapped foxes. Um, I've trapped in Texas, um, South Carolina, Arkansas, I've, all over the southeast. This year I went to Ohio trapping. Um, so that's a I don't. I'm not one of the one of the guys that puts up pictures of a hundred coyotes that he's caught over the season because I got a full time job and working all that. But, <laughs> but I try to lay with it and and, uh, and catch as many as I can while I can. So sounds like you stay pretty busy, Chris. Yeah, this time of year, my, my wife kind of gets she she does pretty good for for the first 
couple of weeks of trapping season and then she's ready for it to be over because it's a uh, it takes a lot of time and that's one of the things uh, it's kind of the good and the bad you know it, it's a lot of time it right. forces you to be out in the field because you got at least in Georgia and a lot of the southern states especially you got to check your traps every 24 hours and so you know getting sure. that in that in in addition to if you make catches then you got to skin and and uh and put up fur and all that stuff so it can it can it can definitely keep you busy for a while. No doubt. So let's uh, dive right into this because I know our listeners are dying to hear about, you know, we're always talking about habitat management as far as deer goes. But uh, tell us a little bit about how the trapping would relate to our goals and what we could do. You know, one of the one of the best ways that I heard it put was um, by the guys at Mississippi State University, their Deer University podcast, if y'all listen to those guys. Um, yep. But they had a they yeah, had a, a podcast on trapping and or predator management, predator control, and and their take on it was that if you can if you can manage the habitat, you know if it's land that you own and you have the ability to manage the habitat, that's going to be a more bang for your buck, honestly, than trapping or predator control. Um, sure. Predator control definitely can help, but it's if if it's going to help, it's got to be something that's done year in and year out, over and over, because Especially with, you know, like coyotes, if you trap them right before fawning season this year and then you lay off for two years, you hadn't really gained anything. You know, you may have, give, you may have given this year's fawns a little leg up, but, but uh, the way that the coyote populations move and expand and, you know, fill in gaps, they, they do so so quickly that if you're, not, if you're not being consistent with the predator management program, um, it's, it's not the most effective thing to do. Right. Now, uh, do you have any information on what kind of damage coyotes will do to the deer population, how many fawns they might take a year? You know, so part of that, you know, when I worked in South Carolina, we were we were catching collaring does and then tracking. Once they gave birth, we tracked the fawns, collared them, and then uh, part of that research that was it's done by the Savannah River site by a guy named John Kilgo, and you can go look up look up his uh research online um but part of that study over the over the course of that study they collared and uh 216 phones and this is in kind of the coastal plain of south carolina so a lot of it's going to be dependent on the habitat and the the area this is the coastal plain of south carolina and they had uh uh, 77 percent of those phones died uh, so that was out of 216 phones, there was 166 that died, and 80% of the ones that died were were killed by coyotes. Wow. Okay. So that was that was 133 phones of that 216 were killed by coyotes. That's crazy. Yeah, and so, like I said, a lot of it goes back uh, to the habitat, at least in the south here, and, and y'all may see some of it too with like your red pine plantations and things. Um, sure, but uh, you know there's so much industrial land, and and you know once once those plantations go in, you know about the first five years is is great habitat. You know a lot of a lot of new growth and early successional growth. There's a lot of cover, but then once those crowns get closed, there's not a lot of underbrush, and that you know the undergrowth right. that's what what that's what hides the farms and right. gives a good good cover. So once when you lack that, there's a limited areas to where those does can hide those fawns, and so that makes it easier hunting for the coyotes. They just narrow down to the areas of cover, and they can, you know, makes it makes it easier on them to find. It, it kind of in my sure. anecdotal experience, I would say. Right. And we're always getting stuck on deer because Jared and I are white-tailed junkies, but... Uh... Would this be like a silver bullet for increasing all game populations if we want to help out our turkeys and rabbits and things like that? I would say, you know, it's probably even more so for for your ground nesting birds than than deer probably, and not just specifically coyotes, but just predators because your raccoons, your skunks, your possums, your foxes, um, they're uh, I think they're going to be more of your bird predators and nest predators than coyotes would be, and a lot of um, you know, general predator sets and predator trapping, you stand a good chance of catching um, 
catching bobcats, catching foxes and raccoons and things like that in those sets as well. So it's kind of a well-rounded. If you set, if you set a dirt hole set, which is a pretty basic trap that you can catch any of those animals with, you know, then you're then you're you're targeting all predators. And so I know, you know, down in in South Georgia areas that still have a little remnant quail population, bobwhite quail population. Predator management is a big thing for them because that's what they're trying to do is they're trying to promote. They're doing a lot of habitat work as well, but they're trying to keep those ground nesting predators uh, as low as possible. Right. Now, up in my farm in Ohio, I'll be sitting around the campfire, and those coyotes will just start going crazy at nighttime. Now, I may only get a couple of pictures now and again, but there's way more out there than I'm, I'm – getting uh, pictures of for sure. So how, how would we know when we should start trapping if we have a problem? I don't know. You know, I, I guess it's all up to you and what your what your objectives are and what your goals are, you know, and, and what your, you know, if you feel like you're seeing a lot of coyotes on your, on your property and, and you feel like they may be impacting, um, you know, and depending on, depending on your, your habitat as well. One thing when I when I went and trapped, I went and trapped Ohio earlier this year, and or I guess this would be last year in 2018 October. And one thing I noticed was man, just the huge amounts of agriculture and those huge fields. And I don't know if that's similar to where your farm is, but uh, you know I can only imagine when the corn's on or the beans are on. You know, there's hiding places everywhere. But right, once that stuff right. gets picked, man, that's thousands of acres. It's just absolutely nothing. It has virtually zero wildlife value, you know. Absolutely. And and, and there again, that narrows down where the deer are going to be and where the you know the turkeys and the pheasants are going to be, and that narrows it down for us as well as the coyotes, you know. Yes, sir. Now, Chris, I. I tend to think I have a coyote trapping problem. Uh, I just let my neighbor have permission to go on there and, and set a few traps recently. Based on the fact that I see a dog out there on almost every trail camera check and uh, hear him as well and you know, see their tracks. Now, back to kind of what we said in the beginning, if I wanted to get into this myself, where where do we start? Right from the beginning, what's the first thing you do? Um, I, I want to trap coyotes and or other predators, but maybe let's focus on coyotes for now. Where, where do I start? What tools do I need? So I would say that the best way to start is is to look up your local trappers association. So a lot of people don't realize it, and I guess it's probably by trappers nature of trying to kind of be low-key and fly under the <laughs> radar. But, but uh, most states have a trappers association or a predator hunters association. And uh, those associations usually have at least one big meeting, if not two big meetings a year. And they're usually in the fall, they're conventions. And uh, they'll have trapping supply dealers which where you can get everything that you need to get started. And then also they'll have a lot of demonstrations. So they'll have people doing hands-on, making sets, and, you know, showing you exactly how they set their traps on their trap line. And that's a really good place to, to see that stuff in person and then also to to kind of touch base with some of your, your folks that may be kind of local trappers for you and, and, you know, pick up, you know, a contact and maybe you can go run this guy's trap line with him one day and just kind of see. Um, that would be that would be a good starting point. Um, from there, though, obviously you got to have your traps. Um, and it's going to be an investment to get in the trap and whether you want to hire somebody to trap or whether it's something that you want to do yourself um obviously hiring somebody to trap if you think that's what you need is going to be a, a lot more costly um but you know for getting started with trap trapping um you can really you know two to three hundred dollars will get you kind of started okay that'll get you some traps and you got to kind of figure out what what traps you want there's a there's a whole a variety of traps out there, but generally a good coyote and kind of predator trap is a, a number two size trap. So traps are numbered in how big they are, and it's kind of awkward because not all the numbers necessarily get bigger as you would expect a trap to get bigger, but generally a number two size trap 
or uh, in some cases like a 550, which is usually equates to like a five and a half inch jaw spread. That's going to be a good a good predator trap. It's big enough for coyotes um, and also your coons and foxes and things like that. Um, from there, the other thing that you got to take account of is you're, you've got to stake those traps somehow. You can't just set them in the ground and then leave them because right. whatever you catch will run off of your trap and everything. Uh, and so there's there's a variety of ways that you can do that. You can use rebar stakes, which is what a lot of old timers used to use. Or now the, the big thing to use is cable stakes or earth anchors. So it's just a little piece of cable with a with a metal piece on the end of it that you drive the metal piece down vertically, pull your driver out, and then when you pull up on that trap, that that uh that metal piece turns horizontal and just creates a amazing barrier to pulling that trap out of the ground. Really great holding power. Kind of sounds like a drywall anchor, if you will. Yeah, yeah, very similar. Very similar. Okay, um, now, now those are, that's like a, a foothold, and then you need to just take that into the ground. And there's also like a, a snare type, right? And how do you know which one's right for you? I would say a lot of that's going to depend on your state regulations. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and I, I'll defer to anything that I say. Be sure you go and verify <laughs> if it's legal in your state. Um, <laughs> For sure. Because you're right, snares or some states will call them cable restraints. Um, but it's just um, kind of like a, a, a leash and a, and a choke collar almost. You know, you set it in a trail and um, and that coyote or, or the kind of caution around snares is, Snares are designed to, to be lethal unless they're cable restraints, which there's not a lot of difference in those. But um, And so, you know, the one good thing about traps, foothold traps, is contrary to popular belief, traps nowadays are made not to damage or injure the animal that's caught. And so it's oh, not really? uncommon. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've got, there's a variety. Like I said, if you just get on uh, just Google foothold traps, and you can see a wide variety of them. They have uh, become modified, so there's a lot of them now that will have a gap between the jaws so that the jaws aren't coming all the way together, um, the jaws being what holds the foot. You know, in the old cartoons, just what's got the teeth on them. Uh, n- no traps anymore have teeth. Nobody uses <laughs> teeth anymore. But they'll have that opening, and then they'll also have a, a laminated Jaw, which means the surface is a it's a wider surface to disperse more of that pressure across a, a larger portion of the foot to try to minimize any cutting or laceration of the foot. Okay. And swivels and are a big. Go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say. Then you have you'll have swivels. Swivels are an important part of of a, a trap or a, even a snare setup because uh, they keep that trap from binding, and so. Uh, you know, as that as that animal gets caught, the coyote gets caught, he's going to start turning and, and turning in circles. And as long as that trap can continue to swivel and twist, then it keeps his leg free. You know, he doesn't it doesn't bind on his leg. But once the trap locks up, if the trap were to lock up, then you've got a lot greater issue and, and chance of uh, damaging the foot or the leg. Um, so most traps have a heavy duty chain and two at least two heavy duty swivels on them as well to try to again, minimize any kind of damage or injury because, you know, in a lot of places, you know, people are dog hunting and things, and it's, it's not uncommon to catch something that you have to release. And so that's okay. one of the, the great things about modern foothold traps is it's not difficult to release something. You don't have to worry about if you catch the neighbor's dog or, or a hunting dog. You can let that dog out. and His foot's going to be sore for a little bit, but it's not going to be broken or anything like that. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I was about to ask that question. What else? Uh, what else do you catch that you would need to let go? And that's probably why they went to the non-damaging, non-lethal version of like the foothold, right? So in case you do get your neighbor's dog or some other dog, you can let that animal right. out. Uh, what else do you end up catching in those footholds? You can catch anything. Um, in some states, especially kind of the northern states, bobcats, not not all states have a season on bobcats, or they may have a limit. So, um, And it's hard to exclude bobcats from a trap. So in some areas, you may catch a bobcat that you need to release. Um, bears, 
small. I've never caught a bear, but you know, a small bear can very easily get his foot in a trap. Pick uh, up in the up in some of y'all's neck of the woods, and you're all starting to get some wolves around um, in Michigan, right? Northern Michigan. Yes, sir. Yep. Yeah. So I think that's that could be a, a possibility for sure. Um, okay. Just about anything anything you can imagine. I call vultures. I call turkeys in traps. Usually deer because of their their the way their foot is. A lot. It's not uncommon for a deer to step in a trap, but their foot will pull right out of it. So you don't usually get it. I've never had a deer caught in a trap. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, is there any sort of other trap that we haven't covered yet or or any sort of assembling and prepping that needs to be done before you set these traps up? Yeah, so there's you get the foothold traps, you get your snares, which um like I said, it's just a it's the snares are very simple. You know, like think of a survival snare. They're very simple and easy to set and use. Like I said, though they're not as selective to use as a foothold trap. Um, so that's definitely something to keep in mind. And that's one of the reasons why not all states allow snaring or they'll have separate regulations that are very specific to snares, what what kind of snares can be allowed. Uh, and then there's also conibear traps or uh, killer style traps. And uh, the conibear trap is a, a body gripping trap is what I'm trying to say. But a conibear trap is a square trap. But you, you've probably seen them in hardware stores. Very common beaver trap. Yep. Um, yeah, it's a it's right. a big square trap that you when it's set, it's designed for the beaver to swim into, and then as the beaver swims into it, beaver otters, um, they got smaller sizes for muskrats in certain areas. You can use them for uh, uh, on land for raccoons and maybe even lynx and 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 bobcat in certain places. But it's designed that the animal goes through and his head goes through that trap, and when his head fires the trap, the trap catches him kind of on the back of the neck and under the, the neck and, and dispatches them quickly like that. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I watched a video on YouTube last weekend. Uh, I just kind of letting the YouTube roll and suggest new videos. And this these Minnesota guys came on trapping beaver all weekend. And I tell you what, man, I would not want my arm anywhere near one of those conibear traps. No, you use you use caution when you're setting those for sure. Those look nasty. Yeah, I mean they were dispatching the beaver like I mean every one of them was just done. So I could I, I know what you're talking about there. Those are those are pretty. Are, are those the biggest and baddest of the traps or? Yeah, I'd say right, so. Okay. There there are some foothold traps, some large foothold traps that are kind of wolf sized traps. That are they're pretty pretty bad, but those those beaver size three thirty conibears those are probably your biggest in general trap. Okay, um, and do you ever use any sort of scent proofing or bait or anything like that when you're getting these things ready? I see a lot of guys wear gloves, uh, like a latex glove, or or uh, I mean, is it pointless to go in there without a glove? Or are you, are you just you know? Getting your scent everywhere? How's that all work? Yeah, so you get different takes on this from different people, but typically most people are kind of in agreement that, you know, predator trapping and coyote trapping, scent control is an important issue. And so um, one of the things with your traps is you want to treat them before you go out and set them in the field, and, and you treat them as, as twofold. Uh, you want to get any scent off of them and try to neutralize neutralize them so that they don't, you know, because when metal comes fresh from the factory, it's got grease and things like that on it. You want to get that off and kind of decontaminate it. And you also want to protect it because you're taking that metal and sitting it out in the woods, out in the dirt where it's just naturally going to rust if you don't do anything to it. And so there's a couple of different ways that you can do that. And and what's kind of most common is boiling and dyeing. So you boil that trap in some eat some Dawn dishwash dishwater, and, and there's even guys that'll put those traps right in their dishwasher and run them on a, a run run cycle to uh, get that grease off initially. I don't recommend that, <laughs> but uh, and then you dye them in a logwood dye, or there's actually some other kind of dips, some speed dips that are a little bit quicker and easier to use, but they uh, they'll give them kind of a black coating on the trap and like I said that'll that'll kind of keep that trap scent free as long as you keep it scent free and then uh, it also protects it especially folks that are in Ohio and north trapping once they get into this time of the year if they can still trap 
they're using uh, antifreeze, and which is it's just kind of a salt mixture. But they're using things to keep their traps from freezing in the ground, which is obviously very corrosive to metal. So uh-huh. that's another part of it is, is trying to keep those traps. Yeah, I mean, you, you spend a lot of money and a lot of time on those traps, so you want to you wanna make sure they're, they're taken care of and in the, in the best shape all the time, so. And and what about and I, what about bait? You use any sort of bait when you're setting these traps? Yeah, that's a question that, that I get a lot, especially from from people interested. Is you know should I should I set a trap on my gut pile or you know on a deer carcass or a cow carcass or something like that? And typically, my answer is no. Um, depending on where you are, you know, a lot of times some some places up north. Those kind of carcass stations or bait stations can be productive once you get into the you know the dead of winter and there's snow everywhere and it's, you can see kind of trails coming in. Those can be great places to set snares. Um, the problem that I run into once you get south is you know it doesn't get that cold and vultures are very active around here all throughout the winter. So if you start setting traps around gut piles or things like that, you got probably a better chance of catching a vulture than you do a coyote. Um, so actually what, what I do, what, what most trappers do is buy a uh, commercially produced trapping bait, um, bait and lure. So there's trapping supply dealers that are kind of scattered all across the country, different little companies, and they'll make their own concoctions of, and you have to be a trapper to kind of appreciate this stuff, but uh it's, it's concoctions of slightly tainted or rotted meat mixed with some glands and and different um, different oils and stuff depending on what their specific recipe is. Um, but they'll they'll package this stuff, bottle this stuff up, and then you can you know you can buy it and use it for uh, for trapping and it's it's preserved. So they've you know, these guys and I've never I've never messed with bait making or lure making uh, because there's a lot to it, but. They'll have, you know, their recipes down to where they may age it for three months. Some of them age them for years mm, to get wow. just the right amount of, of taint on it, if you will, <laughs> and then uh, and then put a preservative in it to keep it from rotting even further. Uh, and uh, so if you if you ever do go to one of those traffic conventions that I was talking about, you'll know as soon as you walk in the door because you're going to smell all the, the baits and lures from the, the guy selling that stuff, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. But yeah, there's a there's a variety of those different things that can be used in different situations from you know gland lures and and urines that you may kind of may use on a more subtle set to try to and when I say set I'm talking about where you set a trap that's kind of how you set up your traps what trappers refer to as a set um, and you know you may may try to mimic like a a urine a scent post or a scent marking um, and and then like I said you there's other sets like a, a dirt hole set which is Kind of may try to mimic like a, a mouse hole or a, a you know a small hole dug in the ground where your trap's bedded in front of that trap that hole and your bait and lure goes down the hole to try to get them to come in and, and want to dig in that hole to get your get your bait out and to do right. that they've got to come across your trap. Now, Chris, you mentioned uh, not setting up on gut piles. Um, so we know not to do that. What, where would you recommend that we set up, and how do we know where to set up? Well, so that's a, that's one of the things that I like about it. Uh, trapping is it is always there's always something to learn from the animals, and we don't get the luxury of and I say luxury probably loosely y'all would y'all would say, but we don't get much snow down here, so we don't have a lot of real good sign so far as tracks and stuff to, to read and see through the winter. Um, so a lot of, in, in the south, you kind of do a lot of location trapping and a lot of just kind of scouting and, and looking as you're riding roads and stuff, trying to see tracks and scat and, and kind of pinpoint where you think animals are moving. Um, but but uh, just as a general rule, you know, I kind of try to key in on intersections. And okay. uh, that may be, you know, two road intersections it may be the intersection of a couple of habitat changes, like where a road comes out of a pine plantation and crosses a creek bottom. Um, it may be where two four-wheeler trails come together. Just just looking at things that, you know, in general, if a coyote's not hunting, if he's, if he's traveling, he's not going to cut through some thick 
plantation or, or you know, he's going to take the path of least resistance. So he's probably traveling those roads as much as anybody else. And you'll see, you know, you can see that through their tracks on the, on the roads if you get it, if you can go after a rain. Right. And so that's just as a, as a general rule, that's kind of what I try to key in on is, is kind of look at kind of the major habitat features and then look for intersections in those features and where try to pick out some of the, the more prominent intersections and that's kind of where I where I start from. Now does that change from species to species? Like if you're going from coyotes to coons and possums or or is that sort of like just a general rule where you start? That's general. It'll definitely change from species to species. You know, if you're if you're really targeting raccoons, then you could probably target more of the, the creek runs and things like that versus um Versus versus coach, you know that's not going to be, you know that they're not as likely to follow that creek up and down across across and as, right. as a coon would. Okay. So we got our traps, we got our location, we got our bait. Now we caught one. Now what are we going to do? So again, it all depends on what's legal and where you're at. Um, but okay. for the most part, you're going to dispatch it. You know, you're going to shoot it in the head with a twenty-two. Is, is typically right. what what's done, um, and then take it out of the trap. And now that's a an excellent place to reset that trap, um, okay? Because this guy, that animal's been there, you know, for hours as he's been caught, leaving sign, leaving scent, and uh, it's it's going to be all torn up. So what, you know, it's what trappers call a cat circle. So everything, you know, with that trap being staked in the center. That coat is going to churn up the ground everywhere he can reach. It's going to be in a perfect circle, and uh, so that's what's going to be called the catch circle. That's going to be a huge amount of what we would call eye appeal. It's something you know, a passing coyote, he's going to see that and know that something went on there. There was a coyote there, and so he's probably going to come and check it out. Whether he comes all the way inside and to the trap or not, um, maybe or maybe not. But um, but he's definitely going to come check it out. Right. Now, most of our listeners are probably familiar with field dressing and taking care of deer. Uh, I've done a few uh, other species, not many. Could you walk us through, you know, what you do to harvest them, gutting them out, skinning, or is that all species dependent also? It's it's pretty similar. Um, the only species is different is really beavers. Beavers okay. are what, what they call open skinned, and uh, so beavers, you actually skin those, you, you cut those, you lay them on the back and cut from their tail straight up their belly to their chin. And then you skin them out like that. So it winds up being a big open circle when you get done with a beaver. Okay. Um, that's the only thing that you do if you're, if you're, if you're planning to sell to the fur market, I should say. That's the only, right. that's the only animal that you do like that. Everything else is, is what we call case skinned. And All what right. that is, is just taking and ringing around, you know, hanging him up by his back legs, just like if you were going to, you were going to skin a deer, ring around the, the ankles and then make a cut, um, down kind of the, right along the, the hind, hind quarter where the, you'll, you'll be able to see where the hair kind of changes from back hair to belly hair. You're going to skin right along that edge, around the anus, and then back up the other leg, make that cut, and then you're just going to start peeling the hide off. And it's going to come off kind of like a pulling a sock off inside out is what it's going to look like. Okay. And that's the – that's. So you want to keep that almost as, as whole as possible without any, without any splits up the middle or anything. That's right. Now, if you just want to, you know, you want to tan it for a, a wall hanger or something like that, you, you can definitely split it up the middle. but. If you're if you have any intention of potentially selling to the fur market, then you want to keep make those the only cuts is you know up and down those back legs is, is everything all the only cuts you want in that hide. Gotcha. Now, Chris, say you get a few yotes under your belt and you skin them. What do you do next after you skin that hide? How do you treat it and how do you get it ready for whatever the next step is? Maybe it's selling. That's- yeah, that's one thing a lot of people don't realize is a lot of people assume that you tan it and then sell it. Um, but actually you don't. If you're, if you're selling to the fur market, you don't tan it at all. 
um, because the end users, the, the people that are actually going to make garments out of them, a lot of them have their own tanning processes depending on their their sewing processes and all, and so they want it done a certain way. Uh, so there, there's not as many fur buyers around now as there, there were in years past. Um, and I, I guess we can talk about fur market for a minute. Um, you know, the, the fur market and what you can what you can get for those furs it varies greatly for, even from year to year. I mean, it's like even more drastic than the stock market. Um, and so right now the fur market is 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 down, and it's been it's been down relatively speaking for for probably three or four or five years. Um, but it, it like I said, it varies and it varies by species. So actually. In general, the fur market's down right now, but coyotes are in very high demand. Really? And so, yes, uh, believe it or not. Um, and it's all because, you know, the fur that gets produced in the U.S., the wild-caught fur, uh, the majority of it goes overseas. And right. so it'll go to China is a big user. Russia is a, is a big user of certain pieces. And then um, Italy and Greece uh, and, and Japan are kind of – Probably some of the bigger fur players in the in the in the world. That's where most of our fur goes, and it goes there for different reasons. So a lot of a lot of what the Chinese use is more um, kind of status signs of status, and so bobcats and coyote fur is typically used for um, trimming out parkas and hoods. You know, like we see around here, but most of what we see. In the U.S., it's probably fake fur, but you'll right. see that fur fur cuff around a uh, a jacket or something like that, and uh, that's what that's what a lot of that's kind of what's driving the the coat high coat demand right now is that that trim market. Now the Russian market's interesting because I would think that they would have plenty of their own furs. Yeah, me too. You know, I don't really know how that works because I I know there are some trappers in Russia. But uh, I don't, I don't think they have. I don't know if it's they don't have the access or or what. Apparently, that that's not a big, that's not a big driver there. Um, a lot of what a lot of what will go from us to Russia is raccoons, and they use it. It's it's for warmth. I mean, they use it for coats. And uh, so, if Russia has a particularly bad winter. Typically, that'll be meaning uh, an increased demand in raccoon hides, because that's where our raccoons primarily go, more of a utilitarian type fur, as opposed to kind of a more flashy upscale fur like the coats and, and bobcats. Okay. Now, what is the what's a nice male coyote fur fur going for these days? And and there again, that's all going to vary depending on where you're at in the. Typically, kind of the, okay. the Rocky Mountain states. Is there like a range? Of, maybe you could give us. Yeah, yeah. So, so typically in the Rocky Mountain states, it's kind of your your better fur quality coyotes and bobcats, and uh, some prime prime coyotes out there are going probably in the eighty to hundred dollar range. Wow. And you know, even even getting over into like Michigan and and Ohio, um, you're probably talking fifty dollars plus. Just ballparking right now uh, for for a good prime coyote this year. Uh, you get down into the south, and, and we don't have the great fur quality. Um, you you know, if if I get ten bucks for a coyote, I'm ecstatic. Really? That's good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a. Uh, I'm not I'm not in it for for making any money down yeah. here for sure. <laughs> okay. Wow. Now. Uh... Does it matter whether it's a male or a female or anything like that, or is it just depending on the quality of the fur? I know some are some can be mangy, and maybe what causes that versus like a a perfect fur or what? Yeah, yeah, it all depends on the quality and the size has a lot to do with it too. Okay. So, so when that fur is it goes to sale, they grade it based on the, the fur quality, the fur thickness, the color. Because you know, coats are a funny thing; is they they can vary a lot in the colors that they you know they are and uh and then also the size so you know larger larger sizes typically bring bring more money and a lot of times that kind of leans towards male coats versus you know male of any kind because usually the males are a little bit larger gotcha no that makes sense okay 
What about beaver fur or uh, muskrats? I know I've seen my uncle trap a bunch of rats before. Um, beaver seem to be kind of popular. Or raccoons. A lot of guys are taking out coons for uh, protecting their turkeys. And we've even talked to uh, another gentleman from the south uh, earlier last year about trapping for coons, too. What are the, what's any of those worth? Yeah, so beavers right now, I, um, the market's kind of okay on beavers. And for your your northern beavers, you're probably looking, you know, twenty twenty five bucks maybe. Okay. Um, so the beaver market can be decent. It's, it's not too bad. Muskrats are one that that can vary widely. They're not they're not a high dollar item necessarily. Like in the past, it's probably five or six years ago, muskrats were in pretty high demand, and uh, they were talking like ten or twelve dollar muskrats, which doesn't sound like much. But muskrats are really easy to catch, and they're really easy to skin. So, you know, when when muskrat prices get high, there's guys that'll get out there and they'll trap hundreds to thousands of muskrats. You know, wow. And uh, they can do a lot better because you can you can run a lot more and catch a lot more easier than you can trying to catch a hundred coyotes. In general, sure. Um, but in general, kind of what I've seen is is your bobcats. And otters, at least for southern furs, those tend to be our two most valuable furs. Year in, year out, those are kind of, if you were trying to trap for money, those would be my two primary targets. And how and that, often do you run into those where you're at? It's pretty common. It, it's uh, I caught an otter three days ago. I caught a pretty nice male otter in a, in a beaver trap, but one of the the thing with otters is they, they range so much and, and they make these large kind of circuit, circuits or loops with their, with their travels. And so a lot of times it's, it's hard to catch, it's hard to target otters. You, you usually more pick those up as incidental when you're in your beaver traps. Um, but it's always a, that's always a good, a good surprise. And then bobcats, you know, especially here in the south, I mean, bobcats are, are very plentiful and, and pretty easy to target. So not, uh, not uncommon to come by those for sure. Very nice. So what so is the... To, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so getting back to the selling part of it. So once you skin that animal, there are some buyers that will actually buy that fur if you just take it and put it in the freezer. Particularly if fur's in, in high demand like coyotes right now, if you just put it in the freezer, um, they'll buy it frozen. They, they may want it thawed out so they can look at it and gauge it, but they, they'll buy it frozen where you don't have to do anything to it. Um, if you're wanting to sell to auctions, like most of my fur I ship to North American Fur Auctions, which is a large auction house in Canada, and they want, they want everything stretched and dried. So you take that fur after you get it skinned, you turn it inside out, and you'll try to scrape all the flesh and fat off of it to get it just to where it's bare hide. And you'll take that and stretch it over a form called a stretcher. And it just, uh, it's kind of, uh, kind of like an arrow shape. It, it, uh, it's kind of rounded at the top and narrow. And then, and then you flip it down over it and it kind of fills out the, the, out the hide. Very similar to if you had just, a, you've seen a coyote hanging on somebody's wall. Yep. Um, and so all that does, you leave it on there to dry. And that's where a lot of people think that it's tanned because you can pull it off and, and it's it's pretty durable. You know, you don't have to refrigerate it or anything like that. It can keep for a while like that dried uh, as long as you keep it away from bugs and away from moisture. Um, and so that's what that's why the auction houses want them like that. Once you ship them to them, you know, it's, it's no problem for me to ship them from Georgia, you know, up there. And then they can put it in cold storage and they can keep it for years like that. Um, so there's, there's a little bit more to that process. Some animals are easier than others. Coyotes and foxes and bobcats are typically easier to flesh and to get that meat and fat off. They don't have a lot on them. Beavers and otters, or they, they're typically one that you're going to spend more time, more time fleshing and, and prepping that hide to be able to sell it. So run me through the, the fleshing portion. Are you literally just uh, scraping all the meat off and then you're left with... <clears throat> just the, the backing, or how does that look? How do you know when you've done a good enough job? But once you do that, 
Do you cover it in salt, or, or what do you use to dry it out? Or do you just let yeah, it air dry on those on the things you were mentioning there? It's just air dry. Okay. It's just okay. air dry. Yep. And so when you you can see, you can tell as you're as you're skinning that that animal, even like skinning the deer, you know, you can tell when you get a chunk of meat on that hide. Oh yeah. And you know that hide is right. just kind of a, a white, kind of papery looking. And so you just trying to you you don't want to scrape too hard or too deep because you can get down to the follicles and, and actually damage the fur. Um, but you just if you see any any bits of fat or flesh that are still on that hide, you're using it. You can use a a fleshing knife. You can buy one, and it's uh, it's just got kind of a dull blade on it, and you can just use that to kind of scrape the scrape that that meat off without trying without being able to slice into the hide. Um, nice. And then and then like I said, stretching. It. It's just air dry. They don't want you putting salt or anything anything on it to dry it. Okay. And how many? What, what's the most uh, furs or the highest amount of furs that you sold as your biggest haul, if you will? When you when you're coming year, coming to the, to the to the fur buyer, or do they come to you? How does that work? No, so I I uh, well, there's there's agents for the the auction house that I sell to, and so they'll have pickup points across the U.S. really, and so I'll just meet them with my uh, with my lot of hides that I'm I'm preparing to sell and and drop them off in these big like canvas bags, and then they'll handle transporting them. Up to Canada, where they actually get to the to the auction house. Oh wow! Okay. But last year was probably my best year. That was last year was the year that I trapped most consistently throughout the season, and I think I wound up with uh, right around 120 total critters that I caught, ranging from otters and possums to to coyotes and bobcats. Nice. Wow. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it, it definitely was. It was it was a lot of work. So how much time are you spending per day doing this, and how long is trapping season, and how many kids do you have? So I got one son. He's five. Nice. And uh, trapping season comes in down here December 1st and runs through February 28th in Georgia. But uh, beavers and coyotes are considered pests, and you can trap them year-round. Oh, nice. But typically, unless, unless somebody's paying me, to do that, I don't I don't target them outside of trapping season, um, and then I try to keep a, a pretty consistent. Last year, like I said, I kept I, I took them probably about three weeks off of the season, um, but otherwise, from from December to February, I was laying with it pretty regular, and uh, running probably twenty five to thirty traps a day. And taking anywhere from an hour to two hours to check and reset those if I make catches. Um, and that's either before or after work. And then on the weekends, I would either move traps and try to set them on new ground. So the weekends, I can, you know, I can pretty easily spend the Saturday spending, you know, six or eight hours on the trap line, adjusting, moving things, setting up new ground or, or, uh, just kind of scooping out new territory. Oh, cool, man. No, that sounds that sounds great. Do you take your son along with you? I do, and that's that's kind of one of the things that I I like about trapping is that uh, it's easy. It's once you get the trap line set up, anyway, it's it's real easy to take your family and get your family involved. Because the way I run my trap line, anyway, I run it most of it where I can access it from a truck. So my wife goes with me, my son goes with me, and we can ride up to it if it's cold. They can look out the window and see what's going on. It's a uh, you know, it's pretty exciting when you do make a catch, and it's it's really easy to get them interested then. And uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's not a it's not just sitting sitting in the stand or sitting in a blind trying to get them to stay quiet and not move. You know, so I I, I really enjoy, and I think it's a great way to kind of get kids involved because it's something with um, you know even like my son going and sitting raccoon traps and he he always wants to help you know so he can he can help put some bait in the traps or i always throw some bait on the ground and you know he can kind of get with it and, and do that and kind of get him involved too no i like that that's a that's a good point you know like you said you don't have to be sitting in the the deer blind freezing your butt off you can just sit in the truck and you know if, if you got a yoda out there all right dad I'm, I'm in if not you know no harm to you that's pretty cool yeah that's right <laughs> All right, Chris. Now, anything else you want to cover on this? I think we've gone uh, 
pretty pretty far into trapping one oh one. Um anything else that we've missed so far? I think that that covered a lot of it. You know, it, just talking about getting started and, and kind of raccoon trapping, um and, and getting kids involved. Um there there's some there's a line of traps called dog proof traps. And I don't know if y'all have seen them or not, but it's a foothold trap, but yes. they're kind of yeah, they're they're primarily used to target raccoons. And they're very simple and easy to use, easy to set. And you know, if you got you know if you got some feeders around your property, or you want to try to catch some catch some raccoons and protect your turkeys, or you know, raccoons are really easy to target, really easy to catch, and and those traps are so easy to set. That can be a great way. You, know, you can pick up a couple of those for twenty or thirty bucks, get you some cat or dog food or some marshmallows, and and be ready to go set. And that's a that's a great way, kind of with a low investment, low hurdle, if you want to give it a try and kind of see how your family, you know, gets involved. And that that can be a really good kind of starter, dipping your toe into trapping without getting whole hog and, and investing a lot of money in traps. Okay. I like it. Now, if you lived in kind of a neighborhood setting, I'm not in a subdivision, but I'm kind of in a township neighborhood, and I was to set out some dog proofs in my backyard to trap some coons, what would you tell your twin four-year-old daughters to why you're trapping these raccoons? <laughs> you have to tell them that the, the raccoons are bad and they're eating all their their birds or rabbits or something that they like. I, I like your style. I like that. Okay, you yeah. yeah, that was... That was one thing that I, I wasn't really anticipating. It's been two years ago. My my son, he's he's gone with me trapping, um, you know, basically since he was born. But I guess two years ago we moved, and and he was kind of just getting old enough to kind of comprehend things, you know. And uh, so one of the first, you know, right at the start of trapping season, I caught a coyote. Him and my wife were in a truck, and I walk up there and and dispatch a coyote, shoot the coyote, and uh, get back to the truck and. He's got this kind of awestruck look on his face, you know. That he and it didn't cross my mind that you know he he knew something bad happened to that coach, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I wasn't really prepared for that, but that's when then I, I had to go in with him that the, the coach are are mean, and you know we're trying to we're trying to help the deer and and, and turkeys and everything, and so kind of right. took a little pep talk to get him on board. But that was that's smart to think about because I definitely yep. didn't think about it beforehand and had to come up with something last minute. No, and, and that's exactly why I'm asking. My little girls are uh, <clears throat> smart as a whip. I can't get anything past them. So even though they've been eating venison backstraps since they were, you know, 18 months old, they're, they still see the deer, the arrow pass through the deer on TV and, and this and that. And they're like, oh, poor deer. It, it just, <laughs> yep. And then, you know, you forget about it. Oh, yeah, but it tastes good, right? Oh, yeah, it tastes good for sure, yeah. yeah so it's like, so I can see myself, because uh, we have some raccoons around here and whatnot. It'd be fun to to ex- have them experience that. But you're right, I need to come up with a backstory because they will sure ask why. So Yeah, well, hey, now, if you want to tie that in with your venison stuff, I I did post a video a couple weeks ago on YouTube of doing some raccoon egg rolls. So if you wanted to get no into way. <laughs> I sure did, sure did. Really? Tell me about the egg rolls and we'll wrap this up. No way. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, that's one of the questions that, that I get being kind of, uh, I, I say this loosely, but kind of a prominent trapping person on, you know, I, I got an Instagram and Facebook channel and, you know, posting pictures of catches is, I get a, I get, I get my share of hate mail and, and mean comments and things. Oh, um, a, a lot of people asking, you know, why are you doing this? What are you doing? And so that's one thing that I've tried to, kind of delve more into over the last couple of years is is doing more, you know, trying some different recipes and trying to cook what we've, what I catch and just seeing how it is. And so um, I've done, I cooked bobcat, um, beaver, and uh, raccoon, and most recently those raccoon egg rolls. And it, it turned out surprisingly, surprisingly well. Um, just huh. it's super simple and super easy. I just cut the, cut the back, the back legs off, deboned them, and just kind of diced it real small sauteed it in the pan with some uh, garlic and onions, and then I bought just this little Asian mix that was uh, from a store pre-mixed with uh, cabbage and things, dumped it in there, kind of cooked that for a little bit, and wrapped them up in the, the egg roll wraps and, and fried them, and put it with a little duck sauce or a little uh, soy sauce, and you'd never known that it was raccoon in there. I was pretty pretty surprised. 
I got to check that video out. Yeah, I got to say, like, I'm, 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 I'm on board with that right now. I'd, I'd eat that. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> well, Chris, I appreciate you coming on. Tell us about how people can find out where you're at, more about your school, etc. Yeah, man. So I'm, I'm like I said, everywhere. CodyTrappingSchool.com, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Cody Trapping School. And uh, like I said, everything I put I put content out there to try to help folks to trap and and to learn how to trap. Um, throughout the season, I started this last year, but last year and then this year, every day I upload a trap a video for my trap line. So whether I caught nothing or whether I caught eighteen things, uh, it's just kind of life on the trap line, the the ups and downs of it. And so I've had a I've had a lot Very of good cool. feedback from that that's been uh, that's been positive and trying to keep that going, but. Um, and, and you can reach me at Chris, K-R-I-S, at CodyTrappingSchool.com through email. Um, I do have, as part of the Cody Trapping School, I have a Cody Trapping course. So, you know, all of my content that I put on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube is 100% free. You can learn everything you need to from there. But you may, it may take a while of scrolling and watching a different video, a bunch of different videos to kind of put it all together. So I do offer a course that's kind of a, a step-by-step of, you know, this is what you need to do in, in this order, and, and this is how you get your traps together, this is how you prepare them, this is how you set them, this is what you do and kind of walk you through that individually. Um, and that, that's available uh, for sale if you kind of want to take a take a fast track and not spend 26 hours watching a bunch of different YouTube videos. It's four hours of videos, but like I said, it's all very targeted and very specific on how you do what you need to do to get started right away. Um, so that that can be found on my website at CoyoteTrappingSchool.com as well. And uh, if any if any of your folks are interested, I'd be glad to give a do a uh, a promo code if they enter Habitat uh, at checkout. We'll do a twenty percent off if they're if they're interested in getting started trapping. Oh, beautiful! Wow, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I love that. Well, uh, well, you heard it from Chris. If you enter Habitat, the promo code twenty percent off is cool. And Chris, I mean. It sounds like you really lay it out there for guys to learn. I, I do appreciate that, and it seems like your system uh, has to be working well for you. Do you have a lot of guys going through this school? I do, I do. You know, it's uh, it's kind of hit or miss. You know, there's a lot of folks that just just do the YouTube thing and, and okay. kind of piece and part stuff together. Uh, typically, what I found, and, and and probably I would I would kind of go along with it is is kind of an older older fellas. That are that are not as savvy, maybe on uh, you know searching around on YouTube or whatever, and just kind of want to get straight to it. Gotcha. Are are yeah, the right. ones that have kind of taken the course and and just like I said, just they're more focused. They know what they want to do, and so that's what they're going with. So it's been good. I'm looking to kind of expand that a little bit, try to make it a little bit more interactive. So I've got all the videos on there, but uh, starting a Facebook group where if you've got questions, you can always email me. But try to be a little bit more. Uh, available for folks if you've got questions specifically around things to just make it all that more easier. I'm, that's what I'm. That's what I'm wanting to do out of all of this is is making making getting into trapping easier. So no, it, it nice. really seems like you're doing that. And if you want to hear more of uh, Chris's wonderful voice, he actually has a <laughs> podcast, right, Chris? Yeah, that's that's right. I'm glad you you mentioned that Cody Trapping School podcast as well. We talk uh talk all things. Like I said, it's. And the, the name is a little bit deceiving because it's not strictly coyote trapping. It's a, a little bit of any trapping. But um, if you if that's what you're interested in, and, and all of my stuff, again, is kind of geared towards the, the beginner. Of I, I try not to get too deep or in-depth or, you know, over folks' head real quick. Cause it's, it's easy to do that with, with trapping. It's, it's You take for granted sure. with anything, really, you know, the, the terms and the lingo that you, you use on a regular basis and that nobody else really understands that's not a part of it. So. Right. I like it. Well, Chris, thanks again so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. And uh, you know what? We'll send some listeners that way. Thanks for doing the the 20% discount and uh, for your time tonight. Yeah, man. I, I really enjoyed it, guys. I hope I hope it was worthwhile. I hope somebody, maybe this will spur somebody's interest to, to get them some traps and to get started. Oh, well, hey. If, Absolutely. If you've been listening to us, you know we like to cover the, the 101. All right, guys. Thanks again, Chris, for coming on. I learned a little bit there about how to get into trapping. Uh, my property's a little bit far away to do it every day, but I really would like to do that. And that's something you got to dedicate some time to. And Chris seems uh, 
Seems like the right guy to talk to, Brian. What do you think? Yeah, this, this is excellent. You know, as we keep rolling here, we just keep making these new partnerships with people and new friendships. And Chris just happened to reach out to us on Instagram and uh, got to checking out his information and thought, man, this would be a great topic to cover because we haven't, I mean, we've touched on it, but we haven't really dove into it. And uh, that was great having him on. I think our listeners are going to enjoy it. Uh, hearing those prices of the coyotes up here where we're at, I might have to start getting into this myself <laughs> if Karen doesn't throw me out first, picking up another hobby. <laughs> yeah, you're you're paying off debt at eighty to hundred bucks a pelt. Shoot. Yeah, for sure. No, but that was excellent, and uh, we appreciate everybody listening. Um, we're going to be giving some more back to our listeners, so make sure everybody stays tuned. We got a big old pile of stuff from the ATA from some of our friends that were very generous, and we're looking forward to doing some more giveaways on social media. So make sure you all stay tuned for that. All right, yeah, like Brian said, I I saw what he took home from a lot of our friends at ATA, and he made out like a bandit. So he's going to give back, and we're going to give back <laughs> to all you listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in once again to the Habitat Podcast. We're just trying to learn here, guys, and we we know you are too. So, you know, we really appreciate the good feedback, some great reviews. I had somebody send me a message today on Facebook that was just awesome. Thanks for that, Steve. Uh, You know, you guys want to leave us some good reviews on on iTunes. Uh, You know, every time we get a review on there, we rate a little bit higher, and we show up when people are looking for habitat management type podcasts or hunting podcasts so really appreciate that we'll send you a free decal if you leave a great review and i can find out who you are and also uh if you submit your email address on our website you can go to habitatpodcast.com listen to all of our episodes there and there's a spot where you can submit your email we're going to be doing a special giveaway for email submissions so go ahead to habitatpodcast.com Drop your email in the submission box there, and uh, we'll give you more details on that coming soon. Check us out at facebook.com slash habitatpodcast. Give us a like. Share us with your friends. If you have any other friends that are into this stuff or or uh, maybe they can't bait anymore, like Michigan where you can't bait and you want to get into the habitat management side of things, you know, introduce them to the podcast. We really love that. Um, we're also on Instagram and YouTube. Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, iHeartRadio, wherever you can get a podcast, guys, check us out. Thanks again for tuning in as we become better habitat managers. We really do appreciate it. We'll be back soon with another great guest.